by way of introduction, one of the recent COVID relief legislations that we've seen, elected officials were demanding that the government release what it knows about UFOs, unidentified flying objects. Uh, you may or may not have seen this. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio was one of the individuals introducing the bill requiring the government to disclose what it knows about UFOs. As recently, I was doing some research about this. As recently as two weeks ago, former intelligence director John Raycliffe spoke to reporters about his eagerness to have some of these videos, have some of these documents um, disclosed to the public, saying, he said, and I quote, frankly, there are a lot more sightings than have been made public. Now, this news kind of comes on the heels uh, uh, over the last couple of years. We've seen some declassified videos from the Pentagon. Uh, they were filmed by the Air Force using infrared. I don't know if you guys have seen these at all. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, using infrared cameras, they're tracking these objects moving through, uh, through the sky in patterns what they felt like were beyond you know, the technology of what we have at, at our disposal, like what, what is you know, technologically uh, we're capable of doing in our age. And so in, in light of that, I, I would suggest that, you know, there's probably a number of Americans who are feeling really validated right now. Like, these are the individuals who for a long time, you know, forgetting what the naysayers said, have been holding to the belief that extraterrestrial life has been living among us. Right? Th those who, you know, have wanted to, uh, every now and then I see on Facebook people saying, like, let's storm Area 51, you know, this re supposed repository of, of uh, the government secrets of alien life. No matter what folks have said over the years, these individuals have been holding out their faith, their belief that aliens are here and are real. Now, it might seem crazy to, to some of us, but their belief is a unifying factor. Their belief gives them a sense of identity, gives them a sense of community. They feel welcomed in the presence of other like-minded, you know, enlightened, if you will, individuals. We all believe in something that helps to define our identity. What is it that you believe in? Right? Like maybe you're one of those who, who believe in, in alien life and UFOs. But, you know, I think those of us who live here in Pittsburgh, perhaps our unifying belief is holding to the preeminence of the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? The first team, I can't say only team, to win six Super Bowls and, anymore, unfortunately. Right? But, but, you know, that, that Steelers dynasty might be a unifying factor. Could be your belief in democracy. Whether you align as a Democrat or a Republican, it gives you a sense of identity and purpose. Right? We all believe in something. And so this morning, I, we're, we're, we're beginning a sermon series that traces another set of unifying beliefs. We're going to be examining one of the earliest sets of principles of the early, the early church outside of the Bible. One of the earliest kind of compositions of the early church outside of what we read in our Bibles. All right, these teachings have been collectively called the Apostles' Creed. Now this doesn't mean that the apostles wrote it, right, because the, the composition, the document, I, I keep hesitating to call it a document. I'm sure it was written down. But this tradition, this creed, didn't really appear until about 100 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what was clear from the beginning of this creed is that what was contained within summarized the teachings that had been passed down from generation to generation of Christians, you know, beginning with, with the apostles. So that's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. It was clear that there was a consistency in what the apostles were teaching 
with what, what was formulated in this creed. Now, the typical beginning of the creed, some of you, if you were raised in the church, especially a church that had a high liturgy, you know, Presbyterian, Anglican, uh, you know, individuals like that, you, you've probably had some exposure, even Roman Catholic, you've had some exposure to it. Um, the, the, the opening clause of the creed is, I believe. Right, I believe in, and then we'll fill in the blank later. Now, for the sake of the sermon series, I've chosen to, to change it to, we believe. Now, some argue that the I is important, right? Because in, in churches where this creed is uttered, it's usually done so corporately, like everybody together says it. But it's I believe because each individual stands and speaks for themselves when they're reciting it. But the reason that I want to shift it to we believe for us here in our church is that our desire as a church is we want to be a grace-filled, gospel-centered church. And the way that I often phrase this is that in the essentials, we want unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity, just a kind of an old English word meaning love. And so what that means is in the essentials, the things that are the most important and crucial to the faith, we want to be unified as a church. Now, but outside of that, in these non-essentials, there is a rich diversity of opinion of precisely how the gospel is lived out. Now, the Apostles' Creed is, is uh, as an exposition of our faith, uh, I would argue, is an exposition of what is essential to our faith. Right? M much like the belief of, you know, the, the, uh, uh, that, you know, UFOs, um, the belief in UFOs for those, you know, like aliens are a real crowd together, right? These statements, the, the Apostles' Creed should bind us together as a church. Now, each individual can stand and affirm for themselves independently, you know, proclaiming these statements. But in addition to that, I hope we as a church community can do so collectively as well. So just to, by, by way of introduction, why I'm shifting it from I to we. And so as we look at it over the next three months, it'll always be we believe in, we believe in. Now, before we get to the content of what the Apostles' Creed says, I just want to give a little bit of background of what a creed is. Uh, right? it's, it's more clearly more than a boxing movie uh, starring Michael B. Jordan. Uh, that's what a lot of people think of when they think of creed. Um, but a creed basically was a, a set of beliefs, set of statements that were believed by the early church. And there were a handful of creeds. You have the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. There were a number of these creeds that were formed, but the Apostles' Creed is, is the oldest and the simplest of them. Right, the word creed comes from Latin, and some of you are like, man, I didn't think I'd be learning Latin today. Uh, it, it comes from the, the Latin word credo, or credo, which literally means I believe. Right? It's a statement of what is it that we believe, as we've been looking at. And so when the Apostles' Creed first appeared in the second century uh, AD, it was originally called the rule of faith. Now think about that phrase for a minute. Rule of faith. Think about a ruler. Think about the purpose of a ruler. If you're drawing or measuring something, a ruler that comes in inches or in centimeters provides a fixed standard for you to be able to measure against. Back in the ancient world, they didn't have a fixed unit of measure. They, they had something called a cubit. You may, if you read the Old Testament, they, they always describe things in terms of cubits. What a cubit was was basically the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, 
roughly a, a foot and a half. That's usually what the, the Bible often, you know, say it's roughly 18 inches. But the problem is, as you probably have gathered, all of us are different shapes and sizes. And so, you know, my cubit might be different than your cubit. So it was hard to have a uniform standard of measure. But a ruler, right, a ruler is fixed. An inch is the same length, no matter who is using the ruler and no matter which ruler it is that you use. And so a rule of faith was meant to be a fixed set of beliefs that consistently defined that group. You, you could measure yourself based off of that. The, the best way that I've heard described, a, a creed described as, is a fence, like a boundary. The creed states what we know to be true of God. Because right? God is mysterious. We're never going to know every iota with precision of who God is. Definitely not on this side of paradise, and I would not be surprised if on the other side of paradise, there's always going to be something more to know, learn about him. Because, why? Because he's infinite. And even in our glorified state, we will still be finite in some way. But what we can do is we can build a fence. We can build a fence and we say, you know what? I know with confidence that God is in the middle. I might not know all the ins and outs, the ebbs and flows of who God is, but I know that he is in there, in that fence. Right? We can't put God in a box, but we can affirm the things that he said was true of himself to give us a boundary. A fence provides clarity for what is inside, but it also provi provides a, a defense on what is on the outside. And really, this, in many regards, was the, the original purposes of the creeds in the ancient church. It was a, a way to keep heresy out, right? Heresy being faulty beliefs of God. All these things that were really erroneous, right? For instance, just this is a little bit of an aside. In, uh, in the early church, this is one of the reasons the Nicene Creed was so important, because it said that, that Jesus was begotten, not made. Because there was a heresy in the church, um, I'm completely blanking on what it is right now because I didn't write it down in my notes. But there is a, a, a heresy in the church um, where that Jesus was like a subservient creation of God. Right? That, that there was a point in time when Jesus didn't exist. And the church said, no, that is not what we affirm. We affirm the, the eternality of Jesus in one in the Trinity, one with the Father at all points in times. And so the purpose of the Nicene Creed was to provide that fence to say, if, if you believe that Jesus was a a later production of God. I mean, largely what the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and, and Mormons w would teach at, at this day and age. Again, different, you know, not the same heresy as the, the, the early church, but it's meant to be a fence. Anyway, I, I digress. Sorry. The boundaries, though, exist to provide flourishing, to provide protection for those that al align within it. You know, I, I use this example a lot like sports. If you play soccer or volleyball or baseball, I saw you perk up there when I said soccer, Jordan. We got a, we got a soccer game later today. There are rules when you play these sports that govern the sport, and it's meant to be beneficial for all involved, right? So, you know, if you're playing baseball and, and, and you're at bat and you swing three times and you whiff three times at the bat, but you, like, refuse to, to go sit down and you say, just keep pitching me balls until I get a hit, Right? Like, that's not beneficial. That's not going to be fair to the other participants involved. The boundaries of the creed were meant to provide a clear demarcation of what it meant to follow Jesus. Right? To give clarity about what is true about God. So in light of that, 
I'm going to suggest that if you cannot affirm everything that is in the Apostles' Creed, I don't know that you can truly be a Christian. That's, that's, that's a little bit more of a controversial or harsher statement that I normally make. I recognize that. But these are some of the earliest boundaries of faith. Right? We call it the Apostles' Creed because it was passed down teachings from the apostles, those people who walked with Jesus. And so if we're intentionally going to try to kind of dilly-dally outside of those boundaries, and I'm going to read it here in a moment. I mean, there, there's nothing in here that's like super out there. It doesn't deal with the non-essentials of faith. It deals with the essentials of faith. And so as a result, if you're, if you're disagreeing with them, putting yourselves outside of the boundary, I think, it, I, I think that puts you also outside of the boundary of genuine faith. But if that's a, a hard thing to hear, come talk to me. We can, we can chat about it in person. So having said all that, let me read to you what's in the Apostles' Creed. Um, I'm going to let you, I'm going to put it up on the screen so you can follow along. Um, I've changed a few of the phrases to modernize them a little bit. This is the form that we're going to be going with um, over the next few months. So it follows this way. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in particular, that second half, God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that's what we'll look at next week. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He, Jesus, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. That's where, if you ever, uh, you know, we're, we're taught this at church and learn the more traditional, that's where it says he descended into hell. Again, I, I can't wait for that week. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. But we're not there yet. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, if, if anything that was on those screens was confusing to you, bear with me, because we're going to be looking at each one of those statements, each one of those clauses in more detail over the coming weeks. Right, for example, one that I know kind of... Uh, uh, people st struggle over every now and then is, you know, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It's like, does that mean that I have to be a Roman Catholic? No, that's not, that's not what that is saying. And like I said, well, when we get there, we will look in more detail with that. So, but I hope you are able to see in that very simple statement, there are quite a number of themes. Right? We see an expression of the Trinity, of creation, the incarnation, right? Jesus's arrival his life, death, and resurrection. We see descriptors of the church. We see discussions of forgiveness of sins and our Christian hope of life after death. So while the creed is not the same thing as the gospel, it's evident that the gospel, right, the good news of Jesus Christ is contained within the creed. It kind of permeates the creed. And so these basic statements provide that fence that I described a moment ago, right? To setting an expectation of what faith in God, faith in Jesus, faith in the Holy Spirit looks like. Several years ago when I was transitioning from my work as a, as a college pastor to a more traditional uh, church environment, 
one of the churches that I interviewed with was in Champaign, Illinois. And I was, I was really excited about this. I, I did not, my, my family, Sarah and I, did not want to leave Pittsburgh. Uh, but we're like, if we've got to go anywhere outside of Pittsburgh, we'd love to go to Champaign. A, because it's a college town, uh, but, but more importantly, uh, m- my brother lives there. That, like, that's where he lives, and uh, he and I are very close, and it would have been fun to, for us to live together. Anyway, not live together, but live near each other. Um, anyway, so Sarah and I flew out there to see if this is a place where the Lord might have been calling us to serve. And, and the church that we interviewed with described themselves as, as kind of an experiment. They wanted to be a safe place where people could explore who God was. Now, those of you who have been around me long enough know that that's actually very similar rhetoric that I use about this place here at City Reach, right? We want to be a place where people feel comfortable. I often use the language of of belonging, right? That this is a place to belong and that belong can precede belief. But... Um, Oh, yeah, this is what I was going to say. Sorry, because one of the things that we want to be here as a church is we want to be a church that exhibits diversity of God's kingdom, right? That's clear in in Ephesians chapter 3, that God's wisdom is made known, God's glory is made known through the manifold wisdom of God, right? Thinking, I, I use this every now and then, that picture of a diamond, right? A diamond is brilliant because of all the facets. And so there are different ways of engaging in God that I think adds to brilliance. And so we want to pursue theological and racial and political and socioeconomic diversity here in this church. And, and this, there was a similar pursuit at this church in Illinois. However, after sharing just a few meals with the church leaders and congregants, it was clear that there wasn't a unifying vision behind their desire to be this safe place, their, this community. I remember sitting down with them and saying, like, you know, making a comment literally as, you know, as long as we can hold to the Apostles' Creed to make sure that we're on the same page, like, we can get along. Like, that, that's the, the bat, brass tacks, bare minimum, as a church that we need to be able to uphold. And the response was, like, I don't know about that. Like, there's definitely leaders here in our church who wouldn't be able to affirm the Apostles' Creed. So suffice it to say, after the interview, um, after the interview process, we sat, Sarah and I sat in my brother's car, uh, and, and just Sarah wisely said, like, I think we've got to close the door on this. This is not going to be a good fit for us. Right? Because without the boundaries of the Apostles' Creed, who were they? I would argue, and you, you guys know me, like, I am very rarely, I am not one to often give judgment. But I would say, if you can't, as a church, not that every individual who attends the church needs to uh, uh, uphold it, but if your leadership cannot affirm the Apostles' Creed, those statements that I read on that screen a few moments ago, I I don't think you can call yourself a church, at least not a church of Jesus Christ. I mean, maybe you're a gathering of something else. Like I said, I'm not saying that every guest or visitor in the church has to affirm the creed in order to participate and explore who God is. But like the example of the ruler, if we want to proclaim that we are a follower of Jesus, we need to be able to have a standard to measure ourselves against regarding what it means to follow God. In a world of pragmatic universalism, right, where you can dictate your own truths, right, truths with a lowercase t, we need a robust statement like this creed to give us a foundation, to give us boundaries to our faith. So all of that was in some way introduction, right? I wanted to give a survey, some basic understanding of what the creed is, what a creed is, what the creed says, and why it's important. 
for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at that first clause in the creed, which says, we believe. We're in that original format, as I said, I believe. Now, when we use this modern English word of belief, it can evoke a set of facts that we have. Right? It can be boiled down to a mental or a thought exercise. But that's not what the creed meant in its original language. I believe is a present tense verb. I still don't understand English grammar. Uh, but a present tense verb in ancient languages signified a continuous action. Right? It, it wasn't just something that was once done and that's done. Y you continue to do it. And so, so it could be better translated as I am believing in God. That kind of feels awkward in our English, but that's a better way of what to, to, to convey what they were communicating in that original language. And so what follows is not a, a series of phrases that we just intellectually agree with. Right? It's not a checklist to say like, yep, I believe in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and likewise. And, you know, I, I marked everything off that list. And so sit back and be like, I guess I'm okay. I know many of you have heard me say this before, but I'm going to repeat myself because I think it's really critical in this age, right? We are in a setting where science appears to rule the day. If you can study something, if you can measure it and put it into a formula, then you have acquired the necessary information. I, I studied chemical engineering in college, and so far too many of my examples uh, come from that world. But if you've ever taken a high school chemistry class, you, you've heard of the ideal gas law, right? PIVNERT, PV equals NRT. Right? Anytime you study gas, uh, the, the formula, it, it's ideal, so it's not necessarily going to um, affect, it's not going to be completely precise, but it gives you a pretty good ballpark of what your answer would be. If you know what three of those variables are, let's say you know pressure and, and, and uh, volume and how much of it, it's called moles, how much of it is in there, then you can probably figure out through this formula what the temperature is. We often try to boil life to boil God down to a formula as well. But that's not how he works, right? There's not a set of like, I know these things, so if I plug them in, voila, this is what God thinks about said thing. And so let me give you just an example. Uh, doesn't have to do with God, but an example of life. When Sarah and I first moved to Pittsburgh, I, I read a book. Uh, I use it in all my, my premarital ma marriage counseling now. Um, uh, it's called For Men Only, and for, there's a For Women Only as well, companion to it. And using sociological data, the authors were able to unlock some of the personality differences between men and women. Now, their data, you know, admittedly so, is somewhat stereotypical, uh, but sometimes stereotypes exist for a reason, right? Because they rep represent uh, attitudes or actions of a large swath of a particular population. So, you know, think of like a bell curve in, in statistics. You're always going to have outliers to stereotypes, but the bell curve kind of shows that the, the, the majority of, of individuals kind of fall under this way of operating. Now, one of their findings was that, that wives had a tendency to doubt their husband's love for them. Right? When a wife would ask her husband, do you love me? She's acting on this innate insecurity. And the husband's response, what they found was often, of course I love you. Right? Like, I told you that I loved you on our wedding day. Sometimes, us husbands can be a little dense, 
right? Because according to their research, husbands had a tendency to think of their affection for their wives in terms of like a thought, a mental exercise, right? I know I love my wife. I told her X number of days or weeks ago, nothing has changed. Therefore, the statement, I love you, still holds true and I don't need to say it again. That's kind of how men often operated in their research. But people, as you can probably figure out, are not formulas. Right? The love behind a husband and a wife is a dance. It's a dynamic relationship with give and take. It, right? It's continuous. It's not a static reality. Much like our relationship with God. We don't just say, like, yes, Jesus, I went up to that altar call 15 years ago to say that I wanted you, you know, that I needed you to enter into my life. Right? Nothing's changed, so therefore I must still be a Christian. When you come to faith in Jesus, you know that it's a be the beginning of a relationship with your heavenly Father. There's give and take. There's submission to his ways. I don't just say, like, I believe in God or I love God with, and use my brain. Because I'm more than a brain. When the ancient Israelites professed their love of God, it was through the Shema in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right? This is a full person, a full-bodied declaration, a full-bodied experience. Now, that being said, I am a thinker. I oftentimes struggle to connect my brain to what's going on in the rest of my body. Now, the reason this is relevant to what we're studying this morning is because each week we are going to look at theological truths about the creed. There is going to be an element about, think, about thinking rightly about what we're examining, about God. But I'm hopeful that, we can, that I can provide and that we can, can kind of engage this, this subject matter to provide some clear application of how we can live out whatever it is that we're studying. Because the purpose of this series is not just to increase your knowledge of God, but to see how is your life different because of how God has revealed himself to us. All right, let me say this again. My goal is not just to fill your head with theological truths. I spent a lot of my, my you know, early days as a Christian focusing on this. I would devour systematic theology textbooks, and that stuff is important. Don't get me wrong. But my goal is not just to fill your heads with theological truths, but to engage your heart, your soul, and your strength in what it means to faithfully pursue God. You can have all the right answers, but your heart can be far from Jesus, right? Isn't that what he says? They honor me with words, but their hearts are far from me. The language the Bible gives to this, what we're talking about, is faith. Oftentimes in the English language, we use faith and belief interchangeably. A lot of times as you read scriptures, it'll talk about like belief in Jesus. But as I said a few moments ago, faith implies a deep trust, something beyond just agreeing with a set of facts. Through the course of the series, we want to explore what it means for us to deepen our faith in these areas of life. And so two additional metaphors uh, to get you thinking about what faith could look like, and then we'll probably wrap up. So my brother, I mentioned him earlier, he is a professor. He teaches aerospace. He's 
within the next month or two, he more, more than likely will finally get tenure. Uh, so he teaches aerospace engineering at the University of Illinois. He's doing NASA-funded work regarding innovative ways to power human flight. Uh, suffice it to say that my brother understands the principles of how a plane works. Right? He understands the forces of flight, lift and, what are they? Lift, thrust, drag, and weight. He spent ample time, much of his, his uh, graduate level research was in the wind tunnel, learning how to decrease drag. He's worked to create avenues to keep ice off the planes, to keep the weight low. Frankly, most of what he does, he tries to explain it to me, and I'm like, I don't, I don't really understand what you're saying right now. Um, but my brother knows how planes fly. But how planes fly illustrates that head knowledge, right? What we usually might call belief. But faith would mean that my brother would need to purchase a ticket, board a plane, and allow it to take him from point A to point B. Even with all of my brother's knowledge, if he's unwilling to board a plane for fear that it might crash, then it reveals in him a lack of faith. Even in something that he knows a whole heck of a lot about. Right? You showcase your faith in the plane, not just by analyzing it, but getting on it. Over the last year plus, we've lived in the midst of a pandemic, and while this has disrupted our lives in an immense ways, science has produced a vaccine which purports to give protection for the virus. We showcase our faith in the vaccine if we choose to get it. Now, I know that there are a number of people who aren't ready to get it themselves, whether it's because they're waiting to see uh, if there are long-term effects, because it's really hard to do, you know, uh, long-term studies on this when this is kind of new over the past year and a half, right? There, there are people uh, in our church community who I know who are a little hesitant because of past injustices against uh, communities of color because from, you know, vaccines. They were used to harm their communities, to do, you know, to use their community as a guinea pig to, to, as test subjects. And so they are skeptical of a vaccine like this. The point is, you show your faith in the vaccine by getting it, and if you choose not to get it, you reveal that there is a lack of faith in that. Now, I'm not telling you that you should get on a plane or force you to take the COVID vaccine. That's not the point of what I'm saying. I'm illustrating the difference between thinking about it, something, and doing it. The difference between right thinking and right living, orienting our lives around whatever it is that we say we have faith in. So the $100,000 question for us is, what does faith in God look like in our lives? Because we all have faith in something, but in the creed, that's that first statement. I, or we believe in God, full stop. What does it look like for us to have faith in God in our lives? I read a book a number of years ago by Craig Rochelle. Uh, I think it was very aptly titled. It was called The Christian Atheist. The subtitle was Believing in God, but Living as if he didn't exist, right? That's the clear distinction between thinking and living it out, right? The chapters break down his main point. Here are a couple of them. When you believe in God, but aren't sure that he loves you. When you believe in God, but you are ashamed of your past. When you believe in God, but you still worry all the time. When you believe in God, but you trust more in money. Right? Too often we profess our belief in God, but we live as if he wasn't there. We're, we're, we're what's called functional atheists. Yes, Jesus, I believe in you, 
but as soon as I stop saying that, I'm back in control of my own life. I'm not submitting to you in whatever area it might be. Now, I hope that we can continue to unpack this over the next few weeks, but I want to give us a little Bible, right? We haven't really had much Bible this morning. Uh, I, I, I'm having like a crisis of conscience about it because normally I'm more of like an expository preacher. We have a passage that we dig at, but, you know, th- this series is, is definitely more topical, uh, and, and this one was clearly more of an overview or introduction. Um, but I want to close with two verses. In John chapter 6, the disciples ask Jesus what they must be doing to do the works of God, right? Action. What do we have to do? What do we need to do to make sure we're doing what God wants from us? John 6, 29, Jesus answers them. He says this, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. The work of God, the primary thing that we are to be doing is believing. Kind of take... Put, put that, you know, take, take that as a, as a remedy to our legalism. So often we want, you know, our legalism is I need to do something to earn God's favor so that God loves me. The only thing that Jesus says we need to do is believe in him. Now granted, this isn't, as I just said, this isn't purely intellectually, not believing that, yes, Jesus was a real person who walked the earth and was raised from the dead. You can believe those facts, right? What, what does James talk about? Faith and works? Right? Faith without works is dead. You say, I believe, that's great for you, but you know who else believes? The demons. They know, they know a whole lot more theological truth than you do, but they don't apply it into their lives. Right? In order to do the work of God, we must believe, we must have faith in Jesus Christ. But life is more complicated than that. Just as a marriage relationship is dynamic, which means that there's going to be those hills and there's going to be those valleys. There are times when the spouses are clicking and there are times when they feel distant. Our faith in God is no different. God doesn't change, but we do. I've taken much hope in the simple prayer of a father in the Gospel of Mark. His boy is possessed by a spirit and the spirit is wrecking havoc in the kid's life. The father says to Jesus, like, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Mark 9, 23 to 24 is the the exchange between the two. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Right, this father desperately needs a miracle for his family. And Jesus said that all things are possible for the ones who believes, who trusts. But the father recognizes that there was some deficiency on his part, right? I believe. Help my unbelief. As we journey through this ancient creed over the next few months, may this be our cry. When we struggle to connect the dots of what we learn with what's going on in our lives, right? When we struggle to see how these precepts aren't just static blocks, but elements of faith, when we struggle to live them out, may our cry be the same. Jesus, I know you are who you said you are. I know that you are true. I know that your ways are pure. But help me. Help me when in the places where this is a stumbling block for me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Join me in prayer. 
Lord, over the next three months as we turn our attention to you, turn attention, our attention to that, that, that earliest, that ancient kind of extra-biblical content that was passed down through the first few generations of the, the teachers, originating with the apostles, originating with Jesus. Lord, may we be a people who don't just seek to have right answers. Who cares if we can get 100% on the Bible trivia quiz if we don't apply it into our lives? So help us be a people who think rightly about you, but allow that to translate into right living with you, that we would have faith in you. And the places where we push up against the, the, the difficulties where those strongholds in our lives continue to prevent us from living out of faith, may our cry be that same cry of the Father. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, we need you to knock down those strongholds, to knock down those hurdles and barriers so that we can live into what you desire from us, that we can live that abundant life that Jesus promised in light of your kingdom. We're so grateful that you listen and you guide us. We want to prepare ourselves for you to work on us. In Jesus' name, amen.